Good morning and welcome to the Vino Karma Project's forum, creating brand loyalty through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, and representation. Hopefully all of you can see me. Uh, I'm Amanda Layden, the founder and CEO of the Vino Karma Project. At Vino Karma, we focus on creating socially conscious brands, particularly in the beverage and hospitality spaces. We really focus on three core things. Number one, diversity, equity, inclusion, and representation. Number two, innovation. And number three, social change. During the past year or so, we've experienced somewhat of a collective reckoning as it comes to diversity and race and understanding our systems and structures and how they're set up within our organizations and our society as a whole. Consumers are demanding more than ever before from brands and organizations. They are looking across the entire value chain of the industries and asking what your organization stands for, how you're taking action, and how that's affecting everything from hiring to retention to promotion and what a consumer chooses to put in their glass. In fact, a recent study from Porter Novelli examined leaders' opinions on purpose-driven leadership and how businesses should engage on social justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion within the context of our rapidly changing world. Results show that 73% of executives believe that DEI is a moral imperative that drives profit. Yet 43% of the leaders cite that they haven't done anything because their stakeholders can't agree on what action to take. Regardless of where you and your organization are on this journey, this is going to be an important conversation for you to understand what it means to be a leader in the beverage space and what you can do for DEI and representation. Today, we're going to talk to an expert in DEI, as well as a woman who owns her own spirits brand. And before I introduce you to these two amazing human beings, um, I want to let you know we are on Zoom webinar, so although we can't see you right now, please go ahead and ask your questions. We will be interacting with you. This is your show too, so if you have questions for us, I will for us I will ask Cornelia and Chanel, and we will be addressing them in real time. This is real. This is live, so there could be glitches. There could be things that happen, so please bear with us as well. Now, I'd like to introduce you to our two panelists. First and foremost, Cornelia Shipley. Cornelia is the founder of Three Keys, ah, 3C Consulting and a sought after speaker, professional development and diversity consultant and strategic planning expert who has worked with many clients to expand their capacity and increase their ability to drive clarity in their organizations and ultimately increase the advancement of critical talent in their organizations. She and her team have worked with a multitude of companies such as Procter & Gamble, Turner Broadcasting, GlaxoSmithKline, and um, she also is a strategic coach and consultant. So welcome to Vino Karma Cornelia. I love seeing you, so thanks for joining us today. Can you share with us the definition of intersectionality and how it relates to the American consumer and an employee? Yeah, so I think, you know, everything post-2020 has, has really put us in a position where we are defining interse intersectionality as the space and place where your employer brand, whatever, so that's, that's about, think about this as your reputation on Glassdoor, what 
what potential employees say about you, your consumer brand, so what people say about your product, um, and your stakeholder brand. So think about that as like what the street is saying about you intersect. And so it's about those three things, recognizing the reckoning that was 2020, the diversity tipping point, as many of us like to talk about it, has now shifted that landscape to ask the question across all of those stakeholder communities, what are you doing in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging? And um, to something a colleague of mine, Ron Harvey on my team says all the time, does your audio match your video? So your employer of, as an employer of choice, are your value, are you living your values? Are you committed to diversity and inclusion? Does that show in representation across the organization, et cetera, et cetera. On the um, consumer side, are you marketing to people of color, to the LGBTQ plus community? Does that, do, does your brand resonate with that group? From a street perspective, if you're a privately held company and you want Goldman Sachs to take you public, do you have a woman and a person of color on your board? Mm -hmm. If not, they won't take you public. So it's about understanding that at every single point on the path, the, or, the world has changed and the expectation is that you are going to have representation in the conversation at the table and making decisions about your employer of choice branding, about your consumable brand, and about what's happening to the rest of your stakeholders, including what's happening on the street. So what's um, the second half of the question? <laughs> there's another half? <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to I jump in here and ask, just, you know, on, on that note, as you're thinking about that, I'm going to turn it to Chanel for a second. You know, you own, um, you are the, the first African-American female to own a vodka brand. You own a brand that you have built up and you also, um, you know, represent other brands in the marketplace. And so when we think about building brand with the lens of DE&I, you know, how can brands and organizations go about, you know, we're talking about these three sections that Cornelia was bringing up. Also, how can brands go about, and organizations go about um, reaching the underserved markets? Um, you know, I think it's important to note the access now to demographic and ownership data. Um, that information is more available now as opposed to a few years ago. Um, there really, to me, at, at this point, there really isn't any excuse or justification for real tangible efforts to be made here. Um, even more, right, owners and leaders, as well as advocates in these markets, they're really speaking out now, right? They're talking about um, they're very vocal about what they're lacking and, and the type of support they really need at this juncture um, for their brand, for their company. And so um, the, the access to this information, the data um, that wasn't really available before, I think um, kind of peeks into, you know, um, what brands and org organizations can um, do to reach the un underserved markets. Um, I don't think that data was necessarily readily available before. And so with it being very apparent now, you have uh, data right in front of you. Um, to me, there really isn't any excuse at this juncture. Um, it's, I think it's interesting. You know, there's a, a few folks that I know are on this, um, listening to this conversation that are at the beginning of their journey with DE&I and how they approach 
their um, employees as well as what they, you know, Cornelia rightly so put out to the market into the street. And so Cornelia, I'm going to turn it to you. You know, there's some things that happened in the past year where, you know, brands and organizations came out with really some tone deaf ads and, and some things catering to a certain segment of the population as people are beginning their um, journey into foray into this, you know, what do they need to be thinking about for longevity? You know, I think there's an idea that certain companies think we're too big to fail. So we can say whatever we want and it's not going to affect our market share, our revenue, our profitability. So Cornelia, what do you, what do you think um, companies need to be thinking about and brands need to be thinking about as they're starting wherever they are on this cycle of their journey? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is is twofold. One, there's the browning of America. And, and I'm going to have a U.S.-centric um, conversation for a second. Uh, we can talk about it more globally in a minute. And I get um, having a global conversation with two African-American women. One of the things I know, having done this work for a really long time, is that people don't perceive Black as global. Um, mm. You know, Black people as, as global, um, you know, diversity experts as global. I've lived, as, as um, uh, Amanda knows, halfway around the world in Australia. I'm married to a man who lived in Japan for a year. So I, I have some sense and I have a, a team, that, you know, that's, that's very representative of the world, not only of the United States. So at the end of the day, I would, I would say first and foremost, you have to understand that, that in America, the demographics are changing and you just have to make a decision and it is a decision and, and it, it's not a right or a wrong one, it's a choice. And, and organizations have to just decide where they wanna stand around meeting a particular segment of the population's need and speaking to that consumer. If you want that consumer's dollar, speak to that consumer. If you don't, don't. On the flip side, from a, an employee population perspective, I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago and one of the transgender experts on, a, on the panel said, that in the population of people coming into the workforce right now, so that's people 20 to 25, 35 to 40% of them identify as either non-binary or transgender. Mm. So if you are gonna have an inclusive organization and you want 40% of your workforce as you know, 40% of the available population is in that demographic and you want good people of which there are people in that population who are going to be amazing to add to your team. Right. You're going to have to make sure that your brand is consumer friendly to that population. So it's just a question of who do you want to be able to work in your organization? And that's a question every single company is asking right now. Who can work here? And you've got to make that decision for yourself based on where you are in your journey, based on um, who you're really trying to target from a consumer perspective, and based on what your values are as an organization. Agreed. Agreed. And if I could just add to that, I, you know, to that particular item, you know, we really need to kind of move away from typecasting diverse communities, right? Um, it somewhat can come off as... Um, lazy, I don't want to say it, but lazy for the most part. Uh, we are multi-faceted uh, and multi-dimensional. Um, earlier, I think we talked about intersections, right? So it's important that brands uh, tap into um, what is important to our communities in order for us to feel secure, right, with purchasing their products. So. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, if you think about what it means to be a Black woman, right, I could be a Black woman and be cisgender, heterosexual, 
I could be a black woman and be transgender. I could be a black woman and be uh, lesbian. I could be a black woman and be identify as queer. You know, I could be female presenting and identify as non-binary, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so what does it mean to integrate all of that intersectionality and then speak to me as a consumer? And it doesn't matter, you know, what color my skin is, I could be any of that, right? Regardless of, of what, um, what color my, my ethnicity might, you know, what my ethnicity might be. And right. so as an organization, you just have to decide how do you want to speak to the human condition? Right. How do you want to speak to humanity about the value that they bring to you and your brand and to connect with them on a human level such that they want to actually be connected to and consume your brand? Yep. Agreed. So this this brings up to me another question, which is around, um, as we know, just over a year ago, George Floyd was murdered here in America. And um, there were organizations and brands that did nothing, said nothing, um, didn't approach their employees, their consumers um, about it. And then there were some where it felt like it was, you know, a bit of, um, there was a line between authenticity and performative activism. And we see that not only, you know, with the um, African-American or black communities as brands are talking to them, but also, you know, with the LGBTQ plus community with rainbows being, you know, put everywhere the, you know, the month of June and, you know, what is it that I think um, these brands or organizations need to be thinking about as, as they move the needle forward and, you know, really draw that line between authenticity and this performative activism. And I could, I'll, I'll throw that to either of you. Well, I'll just say this. I think, I think logistically where organizations are having problems and challenges that we see is having their values be actualized. And they haven't had to um, think about, we say we value um, diverse opinions. Let's just say that that's, that's one of the things on your wall in your office. And, um, and if that's on your wall in your office and then you know the entire boardroom is all white males, it's hard to believe Yes, every white man has a diverse perspective. I'm not. I'm not arguing that point. 100% agree with that. I, I might argue it, but <laughs> Amanda said that, not me. Um, and so, so at the end of the day, if you don't have outwardly diverse people, difference that's represented, you can get into the debate about whether or not this value you've put on the wall is actually being lived out. So the work we do with clients is really focusing in on, here's what you've said you value. Are you ready, willing, and able to live up to that relative to a diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and social justice lens, also known as JEDI, for those of you who want the abbreviated version. I I appreciate that. And Chanel, I want to turn it to you for a second. You know, we've seen in the past year in the wine, beer, and spirits industries, um, and even in the past couple months, particularly in the beer industry, uh, there has been a real reckoning around um, sexual har- And we've also seen it in hospitality, right? We've seen chefs losing their jobs, um, people, women and others, come, other people coming forward to say, hey, I worked under this person and this is what I experienced. Um, 
you know, again, when we think about this, this kind of, of reckoning around uh, the sexual harassment piece and about people coming, coming forward, you know, what, what springs to mind for you in terms of um, how these organizations or brands can address this in a way, again, that feels like we're actually being truthful and we're being authentic because consumers are smart now, you know, they are watching. I agree. Uh, you know, I think first and foremost, I think perhaps better training, right? As it relates to sexual harassment and better response when allegations do actually surface. Um, I think that's important. Um, I, you know, I, I know organizations, even me when working in corporate America, the amount of trainings that we go through, it becomes a lot, but you know, I think uh, it's important that we, we we do address the issues that are happening in the in, in these organizations and 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 get employees and and the staff trained properly. Um, creating safe spaces for victims to come forward is also important, right? Um, because you know, I'm telling you, at the top of the chain, you know, if you're being sexually harassed by someone at the top of the chain, you have fear of losing your job. You have you know, and if you you know, if your job is you know, you're, and for most Americans, it is their way to survive. Some, 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 some people yeah. actually, um, they live paycheck to paycheck. And so they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to uh, put themselves in a position where they're out of work. And so um, creating a safe space for victims to come forward and be supported, right? Um, without the threat of, of being fired, um, I think is very important. Cornelia, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think um, this conversation has made me think about uh, something that was said on The View uh, a couple of weeks ago. LeVar Burton was on The View talking to Meghan McCain, and Meghan McCain asked him a question about cancel culture. Mm. And uh, LeVar Burton's response was to say he didn't think we were in a cancel culture situation, but a consequence culture situation. And, and I wholeheartedly agree that we're, we're in, a, in a time in history in the United States where people are having to deal with the consequences of their actions. And those consequences are now reaching people who historically did not have to feel the consequences of their actions. And so what that means for organizations is you have to now decide how you're gonna hold people accountable. And in the world of wine and spirits, when you haven't done a good job of holding people accountable to moving cases of vodka, <laughs> it becomes really hard to hold people accountable for sexual harassment and diversity and equity inclusion, culture issues, et cetera. And so part of what the diversity tipping point has done is it has it's shown a spotlight on the fact that organizations haven't been able to really drive accountability. If you think about organizations that have been doing diversity and inclusion work for a long time, it is the initiative that historically was allowed to fail. Mm -hmm. Right? It was it was the thing that um, you know people would would do some performative work around, but it was okay if we didn't hit our target. And um, it has been okay in businesses. You know, it hasn't been fun, but it's been okay in businesses at times if they didn't hit their case target. And now we're in a place where from a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging perspective, there are these broad reaching impacts. There are these broad reaching circumstances that are happening in the event you don't handle these issues properly. And thanks to Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and all the things 
we're in situations now where where brand management looks very different than it did when I started my career at PNG. Looks very different, right? And so every single person who works for you is a brand ambassador when they're at work and when they're not at work. And you need to have a brand ambassador policy about what that means and what your expectations are. And if you have one, when things like what happened with Amy Cooper, who's now suing Franklin Templeton happened, you're in a position where you can legally defend yourself because you have a brand ambassador policy to cover you. So you've got to start to think through what does it mean for people to actually work here and what are our expectations around feedback and around performance relative to both delivering on the business and delivering on the culture? I think that's a very valid point because there's there's there could be some folks who are listening to this now, whether they're they're on here now, they're gonna receive this later, that might have smaller brands. You know, they might have smaller brands in in beer, they might have smaller burgeoning brands and spirits. Um, and you know, sometimes I think folks can get into a mindset of, well, we're really small and we don't have the dollars to put behind those efforts to think through what this means for us. And I think, Cornelia, what you're saying is regardless of if you're a Diageo or a Constellation, or, you know, I'm just throwing those out there because they're very, very, very massive organizations with a lot of legal, you know, legal things behind, dollars behind them. Um, you know, you can start if you're, you know, it's something you can start thinking through as you're, you're building the momentum for your brand and you're thinking through who do, who do we want to work here and what does that mean for us as we hit the marketplace? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a critical decision and you've got to be prepared for the consequences, right? The problem is Franklin Templeton was caught off guard and, um, you know, our, our in-house counsel actually sent me, um, the actual legal filing. I wanted to read it. And so he went and got it out of LexisNexis and sent it to me, um, the public filing. And, and the reason that she has a case is because in part, and I am not an attorney, this is not legal advice for myself. So my attorney doesn't yell at me later. Um, I'm not trying to interpret the law. Um, but in my opinion, part of the reason that, that Franklin Templeton has a problem is because they didn't have a policy in place relative to their expectations of their employees when they're not at work. And um, we're at a place where, you know, if, if 2020 and the pandemic didn't teach us anything, back to this conversation about intersectionality, people are now working from home. So if, if people are now working at Starbucks, people are now working, you know, at Barnes and Noble or wherever they're working from. And so the lines have been blurred around when people are representing your brand and when they aren't. And it's up to the organization now to define that. And whether you are a brand of one, or a brand of a million employees, you can define that. You can. Yeah, and I think as as organizations are starting to ramp up, and each state is basically reopen. You know, I'm I'm here in California, um, and we're open. Like it's like nothing ever happened uh, in the world. And you know, um, these the sales folks are going to go back out and hit the streets if they're not already right. So they're going to be humping boxes out there. Um, if they're not already, because the restaurants are reopened, if they can find the staff right now. But, um, you know, so it's an interesting thing to, as organizations are saying, oh, wait a second, like we're now, and if anybody was furloughed on our sales team or whatever they, whatever situation they were in, 
we now have folks going back out into the public domain and what do we need to be thinking about in order to make sure that our brand is aligned with what we say it's aligned with? So I, those are, I mean, very valid points. Let's, I want to turn the conversation a bit to allyship um, and, and how brands can start to think about this as they grow their market share and also business partnerships. And Chanel, I don't know if you want to take that one um, as you, you know, because you've basically created a model for allyship with, with what you do with Bose Fest. And I don't know if you mentioned Bose Fest when I got knocked off the internet, but I hope you did. And if you didn't, please do mention or re-mention it again. But yeah, um, do you want to take that one? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, in terms of allyship, allyship, right? Sacrificing the time and true effort it takes, I think to find synergy in allyship, um, it takes time to do that type of work, right? Um, you have to be comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And I think um, in terms of allyship, there's always going to be some discomfort, right? Um, but in order for you to form those allies, you have to kind of go outside your, your comfort zone um, to build those necessary relationships. Um, I know for a fact that one, it cannot be one-sided, right? So you can't expect um, all the work to be done on the side where you're trying to uh, build that allyship with, and you're not putting in any of the work. That's important that um, it's a two-way street. You need to understand their needs and what makes them a viable ally and vice versa, right? Um, but you also have to be patient with the process, right? Some people, you know, they expect to form these relationships and, ex and then they have expectations right away. Um, I think um, in any relationship, um, especially if on the ally side of things, you have to cultivate those, right? Um, those take time. Um, effective relationship building um, is not an overnight thing. It, it just does not happen overnight. So um, I can give you an example. So for me, I realized early on that um, the monopoly that the Indian store owners have um, on the off-premise realm of, of wine and spirits, right? When you, the majority of the liquor stores um, if they're not owned by um, in Indian descent, then they're owned by Asians, right? Very rarely do you see uh, uh, any Black-owned liquor stores here and things of that nature. But um, I say all that to say, when I first started, there weren't too many brand owners that looked like me um, 12 years ago. It's, it's totally different now than it was 12 years ago. But um, it definitely was a culture shock, right? And um, there was definitely some adjustment that had to be made for them as well as myself, um, because they're, they weren't, you know, they're used to a white male coming in trying to sell them products. They weren't used to a black androgynous <laughs> woman <laughs> coming in trying to sell them their products. But what I realized early on, um, my team is composed of men and women, but the majority of my team were women. A lot of my sales um, team was were, were women and, and still is. And they would go into these, these locations and they would not get a warm response because, um, you know, culturally speaking, you know, the Indian culture does not, I don't want to say they don't respect women, but they don't hold them in that, that high regard as they would do a white male or any male for that matter. However, it was a different response whenever I walked in the store, which is strange, right? Because I would think that having a black woman who was masculine presenting walking into your store, um, you wouldn't receive that very well versus just a woman. But the respect, the response, 
completely 180 from just, you know, an ordinary woman that's not masculine presenting walking into a store. And, and so I, the majority of our Indian retailers I interact with because I have the best relationships with them. We have um, the respect, they almost respect me as if I'm male. Strange, but that's how, it, that's how they interact with me. They don't look at me as a woman for whatever reason. Uh, but, you know, as, as you know, it just, it just took years to kind of understand that dynamic. Um, I thought maybe it was one or two stores, but, you know, after, you know, maybe 90 Indian stores that we probably have um, business with right now in Maryland, um, the dynamic was pretty much the same no matter where we went. Um, and, you know, my team, we, we, we did experiences and things of that uh, experiments just to see, is it really the fact that they just prefer to deal with a male? Um, and in most cases, that is the case. But when it came to me, the response was completely different. I was treated um, as, as a male, as one of them. So, um, but yeah, it, it, in terms of allyship, I think it's important that we continue to put in the work on both sides, understanding the needs of both parties, and um, that way we can really build um, on that relationship. Cornelia, anything you wanna to add to allyship? And you know, I think at one point in time, you and I had a conversation around this zero, people think it's a zero sum game. So anything you, anything you wanna add about allyship and how brands can also be thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that um, the, the zero sum game piece is, is really about um, recognizing that um, there's more than enough for everyone. Hmm. And, and we, we act as if that's not true. And there's signs and evidence to support that. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't believe their experience. Um, I'm also acknowledging um, from a metaphysical perspective that, that, that there's, there's something else you could choose to believe. And if you can stand in the space of there's enough for everyone, it becomes much easier to be open to people who are different than you mm -hmm. because you're not seeing them as a threat to, and as, as someone who might be taking away opportunity for you. I was in a conversation yesterday with a chief diversity officer, one of our clients um, at a Fortune 100 company and we were talking about the challenge she's facing right now is dealing with the white male backlash in her organization because white men are now asking the question, can I work here? Is, mm. it, is there space for me? Mm. And, and the, that, that question in part comes from the perception that this is a zero sum game. And if we promote black and brown people, LGBTQ people, military veterans, other abled people, somehow my opportunity is now diminished and limited. And so allyship is about standing the space of curiosity and interest in another human being and then commitment to saying, let me get to know their experiences. You know, Ch Chanel did a really nice job of talking about, I had a consumer base I needed to understand called the Indian community. And if I wanna sell to them, I need to understand their culture, what they value, how they interact, what matters to them and speak to them in their own language. And so then you can create the kinds of relationships Chanel now has with more than 90 retail tailors in her area to really support her brand and her brand's vision. The same thing is true for every historically excluded community, right? 
And, and you know, it, it, it might be easier in some ways for organizations to start um, with, the, with the community that's closest to them, right? It's part of the reason why white women, when we look at diversity efforts, white women are the women who are the, the ones who benefited the most. It's because it was the easiest connection for the majority, which was white men to connect to. And so now you've got to take it a step further and say, how do I deal with these other people who look different than me, show up different than me, have a different experience than me, and take some interest in that and be open to what they might be able to teach me and what they might be able to show me about experiences, about the business, about ways of thinking about the business. The biggest example I have about that um, from an intersectionality perspective is uh, the brand Tampax. So for the men of you in the room, I apologize because uh, that is a feminine protection brand. Um, but uh, Tampax and tampons were not something that women of color, particularly the African-American community historically used. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, and at one point in the history of PNG, I was an employee at the time, they placed a multicultural woman who had a white mom and a black dad as the brand manager for tampons, for Tampax. And because she had a white mom, she used tampons. Because she had black friends, she had all these friends who didn't. So she had firsthand knowledge about why black women, of whom she appeared to be, but was raised by a white woman, why she, that was the case. And so she was able to help the brand expand market share in a community which for the entire time they had the brand, black women were not using it. And so she was able to speak to that constituency base. And so it's about saying, hey, let me be an ally. Let me support this person. Let me put the, this, give, give this person an opportunity. And they did that. And they, they more than doubled their business in the black community alone. Not to mention the fact that there are other women of color whose cultures say that's not an appropriate thing. So they were able to take that leverage and learning and apply it to other, other constituency bases. The same thing can be said for every brand in, in America, right? You could take what you learn and apply it to other historically excluded communities. And so if you can get it right with one, you can then take those learnings and apply it and get it right with others. Yeah, I, that's a great story that paints a picture that I hope people can relate to because I think part of what's going on right now, at least from my uh, my white female cisgendered perspective, is that uh, um, people are afraid to even open up the conversation, um, which is why we're doing these things. You know, for those folks who have joined us, we appreciate you joining us because you know, even stepping into the conversation to saying what's missing here, because they were smart enough to say what's missing here, why can't we penetrate the market? And so, you know, I'm not saying every person needs to go out and, and hire, you know, a multicultural brand manager, but at least having the conversation to say there's something we're missing in the community when we're targeting that. And, you know, it's time now to have the conversation. I firmly believe this is my true belief right now where we sit in, in this confluence of what's happening, uh, particularly in America, is that brands who are not and organizations are, who are not and leaders who are not having these conversations right now, you're going to be irrelevant within the next decade. And I don't care how big you are. 
Um, it's, it's, you have to start doing it now because the work needs to be done. And as Cornelia, you said before, you know, the browning of America, what does that mean for your employees, your workforce, your consumer base? And it's really important to have those conversations. One of the things I want to talk about real quick, and I will open it up for folks who have joined us. If they want to ask questions, please go ahead and you can raise your hand. You can put it in the Q&A. You can put it in the chat. We'll monitor all of that. Um, one of the things that really still baffles me, and, and I wish somebody would solve for it in the beverage industry, is um, you know helping um, smaller brands get access to funding and to distributors who will pay attention to them in a larger portfolio of brands. Um, so I don't know, Chanel, I, this is like a billion dollar question, but um, what do you think needs to happen in order to help these smaller brands either come into the market or get the funding they need to be successful to, to have some, some shelf space? Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, you, you, you bring a great point up in terms of the smaller brands such as myself, such as a lot of the brands that participate um, in the festival. Um, you know, the, the inability to get access to funding, lines of credit, loans, whatever the case may have you, um, is one aspect of the spectrum. But the distribution, at the end of the day, without the distribution aspect of things, your brand can only go but so far, right? And so what distributors are, are, are requesting from these smaller brands, which they know is, is just unattainable, right? They're asking them to have, you know, a half a million to a million dollars in marketing dollars annually. You know how hard it is for a brand to even just get their product to market? Um, you know, we, we, we need to have more expansive opportunities for alternate fund, funding measures, right? Um, what those are right now, I can't think off the top of my head, but we need those. Um, the, the, the redlining that's happening, right? Oh. <laughs> I, I hate to use that term, but that's what's really happening. You know, a lot of brands who are starting out, a lot of brands who are established right now come to me and they're trying to understand how I've sustained so long in this industry, you know, and what they don't, what they, what they don't realize is I myself have been redlined. I've been turned down for loans, lines of credit, things of that nature. Um, and I've just been taking small steps. I'm not trying to, you know, because what the bigger distributors, what they're requesting for that half a million a million is to take over, you know, three or four markets at a time. And as a smaller brand, you have to kind of recognize where you are in this space and kind of take a, a, a slower, smaller approach to it. Um, but in terms of getting the funding, you know, just like Bulls Fest, you know, you know, we're creating, you know, scholarships, we're creating different things to help um, the smaller brands because some people, they just, they just need money just to finish their bottling, you know, just the small things. Forget about even getting to market, uh, you know, uh, having marketing dollars. They just need to be able to finish the, the, the formula or their bottling. And with, with um, most manufacturers having minimums that are just ridiculous, you have to order 50,000 bottles at a time. A lot of brands can't do that. So we try to, um, with both Fest and, you know, as well as a distributor, I know. I'm not requesting our brands to have this massive amount of, of marketing dollars. We do know it's some marketing dollars, right? But um, we also know that it's hard to obtain those type of, 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 of dollars and funding. And so we take a different approach in terms of how we go after business with the smaller brands. Um, you know, the bigger guys, if they have a million dollars, 
it should be easy to get into a hundred accounts, right? You got, you got a million dollars of marketing to work with, but um, we take a different, more grassroots approach with our smaller brands. Um, and, and, you know, we, with Bullsfest, create certain opportunities for brands. And our scholarships aren't large, 5,000, 10,000, but it's definitely, I know in the beginning phases of, of my journey, you know, $10,000 went a, a long way, right? And so um, more expansive opportunities for alternate funding um, needs to be uh, put in place so that, you know, brands can can elevate for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And um, there is somebody who's raised their hand. So Bernadette, I'm gonna come to you in a second. I just wanna make the point here about this is why, you know, here at Vino Carmen, why we're having this conversation, we, we're looking at the entire value chain because there's there's kinks in the chain, right? If, if we're not looking back at the beginning part of where do people get the funding? How do they break in? Who's actually working the vineyards or in the distilleries? Are they earning a living wage or are they dealing with modern slavery in our time because they aren't learning, earning a living wage? You know, there's, there's all of these things that are going on that, you know, I say is kind of like, it, it's time. It's time for all of us, all of the parties who believe in this industry, who love this industry um, to say, hey, you know, what are we doing and, and how can we make positive impacts across the entire value chain? So I really appreciate that point. Bernadette, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna allow you to talk. So hopefully you'll be able to unmute yourself. You might just have to, um, there we go. Yes, Hi, could you hear me okay? You can. Oh, wonderful. Yes, I, I had a couple of questions um, in terms of um, building the brand loyalty through diversity. Um, the first question I had was in terms of, and, and I think there was a discussion already touched upon this, is uh, access to funding with the redlining, because that is a huge, um, a huge impact on the growth and development of the business. I know that uh, in my particular business, um, that was the reason as to its failure was because of the lack of uh, access to those um, very things. Um, the other thing is in terms of distribution, uh, what can be done for communities to create their own distribution uh, companies if possible, uh, since the those that are available um, are, are not really helpful to smaller businesses. Uh, so those are the two questions I have. So I can touch on the distribution aspect of things. Um, at, to your point, what can smaller brands or smaller uh, companies do on the distribution side of things? I learned early on that I wasn't going to get the uh, recognition or the the support from the larger distributors. Um, you know, they just told me, you know, we have 200 vodkas in our portfolio already and you'll be 201. So I learned very early on that I had to find another way to get my product to market. And so I looked into becoming my own distributor here in Maryland. Um, once I realized I went through all the loops, um, all the hoops, should I say, um, to become my own distributor, then I started to self-distribute my product. Of course, that had its challenges as well. I won't, I won't lie because retailers are used to dealing with maybe the top three distributors um, in a particular market. And so when I would walk into a new retailer and pitch my product and then they wanted to carry it, then they asked, who's your distributor? And I say, well, we self-distribute. And they were very leery. Um, since then, we've built up our distribution name and things of that nature. But um, in terms of um, becoming your own distributor, um, I think that 
that is more than attainable. A lot of newer brands are doing that. Um, I've had brands that I've helped mentor to come to market and they decided, hey, I'm just going to, I, my desire is to get my product um, into consumers' hands. And right now, no one is paying me any attention. I'm going to become my own um, distributor. And so I help them through that process as well. So um, it, it's more than um, obtainable. Uh, the important thing when it comes to getting uh, your own distribution license is always having a physical location. I think every state um, requires you to have a physical warehouse bonded, licensed and bonded um, in order to store and um, sell alcohol out of, excuse me. Um, so on the distribution side of things, um, it's very obtainable. I, I say go for it if, you know, um, the bigger brands or even the smaller distributors aren't paying you any attention because even my experience with a small distributor, and this is why, you know, being on the product and services side of things, um, it's important to me to provide the best service to my brands in my portfolio as possible, because I know what it's like as a person who has a brand. But I started with some smaller distributors and literally they did nothing for my brand. Um, and they were eating majority of the profit margin for the most part. And so, um, you know, you, you really want to do research on any distributor that you 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 land with, right? Um, but more importantly, the smaller ones, um, you want to make sure that they have the sales support team to support you and your brand, um, that they have the accounts um, already, right? Because if they're just starting and you're just starting, then what's the point, right? You can do this yourself. Um, so um, in terms of distribution, it's it's something that you can definitely do. I encourage it. I mean, I did it. I've been distributing my own product. Uh, for the last seven or eight years. Um, and, and then I realized I wasn't the only one having this struggle, right? And so I took my license, leveraged my license to help others get to market because I know firsthand what that feels like. I think the only thing I would add, and I am, I am nobody's funding expert, <laughs> that is not my expertise, but I, but I do want to put a resource. I put it in the chat. Um, it's just wefunder.com. Um, they're an organization that will um, help you actually uh, raise capital uh, to actually find investors in your business. And so um, I know I've invested in, in a couple of businesses that way, uh, one of which raised $4 million in less than a month on WeFunder. Um, uh, the, so, so, you know, I don't know what the, the laws and the rules are, especially because we're talking about alcohol and I don't, I don't, so I don't know, but it's worth potentially pursuing and checking out, um, to see if that's something that might be of support to you, Bernadette. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that I'm, I'm getting a little bit of, um, hope for is I am seeing some. Uh, other types of funds come up that are specifically targeted towards, um, you know, uh, underserved or underrepresented communities. So, you know, traditionally we know that, you know, African-Americans, particularly African-Americans get something like what, Cornelia, you probably know the stat, less than 1% of any type of funding. Um, and that's not, not through the bank, but, you know, kind of venture funding and other funding. And so it's important also to think through, I think one other thing I would say in answering that question is, regardless of how big or how small you are, you know, when you enter business, whatever business it is, there's a steep, steep learning curve. And mm. you really have to understand your market and you have to know your numbers. Because if you're going out there to try to get funding and 
you don't know, you know, in Chanel's case, you don't know that there's 200 other vodka, 200 other vodkas in a portfolio and you haven't done your own due diligence. It's that's on you. You know, it's like your responsibility to understand your brand. Very true. Uh, I'm going to ask both of you kind of a, a final closing question. And hopefully this will speak to some folks listening. Are there any, you know, what are some immediate actions you think organizations, leaders, brands can take to approach to creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace, which mirrors their customer base? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. One of which is to, um, you know, search in a different pond, right? Mm. Like you, you've got to start looking for talent in a different place. And when we say that there's not talent, um, not black and brown talent, not other able talent, not LGBTQ talent, that's just not true. And yeah. so um, it, it, it's incumbent on you to say, how do we think about doing this differently? And how do you wanna leverage technology? I was in a conversation in a strategic advisory session today with one of our, um, our clients and we are talking about a TikTok strategy for them to reach, you know, to reach uh, other folks, right, that are not typically reached in their demographic. So you got to start to think about where are the people who you who you want to reach and who you want to work for you. Where where do they sit? You know, it's no it's no different than um, you know anything else. And and no no marginalized community is monolithic, right? And so to assume that all brown people are economically disenfranchised is a wrong assumption. To assume that all G LGBTQ people or all trans people are homeless is a wrong assumption, right? Like there's all of these things that are, that are preventing you from potentially looking in places where you may already be and you're assuming that people who look like Chanel and I aren't, right? Mm -hmm who are other abled aren't. And so it's about you, you starting to say and recognize one, am I paying attention to where I am? And two, am I looking in a different place? I think that's really important. Also, I think this industry traditionally, you know, um, and you both know I came from the trade, right? I worked in the trade for many, many years. Um, and um, this industry traditionally hires from within. And one of the things, you know, I kind of joke about this industry as a whole, you know, it's one of the oldest industries on the planet, literally. Um, and, you know, we can trace this back, we can trace bever alcoholic beverages back for thousands upon thousands of years. And there's something that's important about the tradition of the industry, right? The history, the tradition, the culture. It's one of the reasons why I got into the industry, um, because it's fascinating. And yet there's this dichotomy which exists, which is, okay, we're going to hold on to this tradition and we're going to be so, so slow to change. Um, and now this past year with people really adopting technology and saying, how do we reach the consumer faster? How do we reach who we want to hire faster? The industry has been forced to change in a way that they never thought they were going to have to, especially with uh, cellar doors closed or breweries closed where you couldn't visit them. Um, you know, there's something that you know, they've really had to think through their consumer strategy and their hiring strategy in a different way. So, yeah, I, um, I great points you, you, you bring up. And Chanel, is there anything else that, you know, we haven't talked about today that you want to share with folks who are listening um, just about, you know, how they build their brands from a DEI perspective or, or anything else that you'd like to share with folks? 
Um, well, just to touch on that 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 last question that you 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 brought up in terms of um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, ooh, just draw a blank. Excuse me. Actions they can take for um, creating that diverse and inclusive workplace. That oh, that's what I'm, I'm sorry. Yes. So you know, I, I I look at that. You know, of course, I would go with the. The top things that you know most people are looking to see um, happen, and, you know, in organizations, you know, diversifying the C-suite and board positions and senior management positions and things of that nature. I think that's important. Um, we don't see enough representation at the top, um, and and more importantly, right, um, not just placing them there, but giving them the the, the tools to be. Uh, successful, right? <laughs> We're not just going to put you at the top and say, "Hey, now we have somebody um, in a senior management position." Um, organizations should also probably consider a top-down approach in terms of um, mentorship, right? Um, I'm a huge advocate for mentorship. Literally, as I'm building my brand, I'm mentoring other brands so that they can be successful. Like, I'm so big on that. And so um, I think if organizations um, do more of that, um, it, it would be helpful. Um, and then also, you know, your cross-pollination of skills and background, right? Ensuring that Diversity extends beyond the physical attributes, right? And classification. Um, it's equally important to have diversity in um, in thought. Um, so, you know, this may entail looking beyond standard profiles and skills to fill certain positions, but um, these are just some of the things I think organizations should um, take steps towards in order to kind of um, diversify their workplace uh, or their organization. Um, in terms of just, you know, I see a lot of new brands. You know, I started in 2009, which is to me long time ago. And, <laughs> and since I've started, when I first started, I, I say it all the time, literally, this is why I created the festival because literally, um, no, I would walk into a room and no one looked like me. Um, there wasn't any um, representation in terms of women. There wasn't any representation in terms of African-Americans and there definitely wasn't anybody in there that was, um, you know, LGBTQ plus. Um, so I walked into the room a lot of times feeling uncomfortable, um, feeling like I didn't belong. And, and so this industry has changed so much in terms of um, the growth that I've seen over the years, right? Um, a lot of new brands are coming in and, you know, they want to take, uh, quick steps and, and things like that. But um, I, I just wanna encourage a lot of, of brands to do their research, um, take their time to understand who their target consumer is, who their competition is. Um, that's very important. And then, um, you know, form and build relationship with those um, who can, you know, help you progress, those who can help you gain that market share um, and things of that nature. It's an exciting uh, time to see a lot more of us in this industry, um, um, but right now, what's important is that they focus on what matters, um, and and understand how your product differs from others in your category. I can't tell people enough. You know, I have brands that come to me all the time. I'm thinking about starting X, Y, and Z. I won't say what it is, and I say, well, do you know how many people out here are already doing that? Mm -hmm. um, Done your research. You know, how are you? different from these other 12 that are already doing that and they've most recently launched their product, right? So, you know, just things of that nature. Um, yeah. is what I, would. I appreciate that. Well, 
we are now at the top of the hour. So um, I appreciate the two of you coming here and spending time with us. What we're going to do for the community is we will send this out as a recording. So folks who weren't able to come on today or maybe had to jump on and jump off, um, they can share this with their teams, their um, people back in their workplaces. And before we hop off, um, I want the two of you to give a quick plug. So Chanel, can you tell folks where they can find your vodka, where they can find you and a little, and when Bose Fest is and where it's going to be located? Yes, so um, you can find all information about where we are being sold for Foudre Vodka at www.foudre.com. Um, if you go to our where to buy section, you'll see all the locations between DC, Maryland, Virginia, Texas, and California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as well as Singapore, but if you're not in Singapore, then that's irrelevant. Um, and then Bowls Fest, we have it every year, the last weekend in September. This year, it will be September 25th and the 26th. Um, this is our first year doing a two-day event, um, but we're excited. We have a lot of vendors that have signed up in terms of wine and spirits, a lot of new spirits that have launched within the pandemic, right? You want to they want to showcase their products here. Um, and so we would love for you to come out. You can find more information on BowlsFest at BowlsFest.com. Awesome. And Cornelia, can you just share with folks where they can connect with you? Absolutely. So um, on all social platforms, that would be Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. It's at Cornelia Shipley. Uh, and then I put in the chat our website, which is just www.3cconsulting.com. And so there's two C's. As long as you find it with two C's, you'll find us. And we are not the cannabis company. So I have to <laughs> wow. We're not 3C Cannabis Consulting. We are not yet. Consulting. So, <laughs> uh, we are not the cannabis brand. Uh, and so, so that's us, www.3cconsulting.com. Well, I want to thank you again for your time. I know you're both very, very busy, busy people. And um, I really appreciate the work you're doing in the world, um, each of you. And so thank you. And thank you for those of us who joined us today. As we say here at Vino Karma, continue to go out there and create change one sip at a time. Cheers. Cheers.